My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. Hello? How's it going, Ruben? Hey, what's up, Richard? It's the latest and the greatest. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, did, I didn't disturb you, did I? <laughs> <laughs> nah, um, I'm over here doing uh, laundry, bud. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> You're doing some laundry? My wife just left town for two or three days with her mom, and they're going to go stay at uh, their family for a few days, and later on today, my mom and her husband yeah. are going to be coming out here for two days. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, when you're on parole, you're gonna see that it, it depends on your agent, but for the most part, you can't uh, leave your 50 mile radius without permission. Okay, we're gonna be picking up with just pick up with the day of the event when you got the drinking driving. However you frame it, you frame it, and I may ask questions right. and and then we'll go from there. All right. All right. So take us through that day. All right. All right. So. Let me say, uh, I'll recap. Up until this point, you know, I think I mentioned many of the bad choices I decided to choose due to my feelings of loneliness, inadequacy, wanting to be accepted, looked as more, you know, than just a nerd. I kind of ran with these stories, told myself these stories that that used them to rationalize my behavior. Furthermore, I know I had a belief that, you know, I'm a young college kid. You know, I should have to work hard. I mean, I work hard and I should be able to party hard, play hard. And it just continued to, fuel that has four choices of, you know, using, drinking, and couple all this, you know, with being interning at that time, the engineering firm, just that added to my arrogance, added to, like, that perception of, like, I'm an outstanding person, I deserve to have fun, all that entitlement. There's definitely bad choices, you know, cross over to my sex life, so, you know, I was, I was dating a girl before my incarceration, and the entire time we were dating, I did not use protection. And in 2011, the end of 2011, found out she was pregnant. My final year of Cal Poly in uh, December 2011, like fi- end of finals week, find out she's pregnant. And I'm worried. I'm nervous in hearing this news. Yet, as her and I, you know, go to the doctor and decide that we will have to follow a visit, I'm starting to imagine, like, you know, we're going to have a child. And uh, I started becoming kind of excited about it. started thinking about it. And I'm like, this this is actually a good idea. It's actually, it's going to be cool. And uh, I agreed. At that point, I was like, I'm going to stop drinking and using drugs. And I did. I stopped cold turkey. Now, I went back to my parents' house in Bakersfield for Christmas. She went to her parents' house. On Christmas Day, I'm hanging out with high school friends. And she texts me and informs me that her parents made an appointment at Planned Parenthood. And uh, a couple of days before the new year, uh, I mean, I, I was distressed, devastated, confused. Talked with my friends, conferred with them, you know, that night, and I decided, you know, I needed to go visit her and you know, speak with her family. I was already planning to go with her for New Year's to see see her at uh, family's house. So instead, I decided to drive up a few days earlier and hope that I can visit your parents to reconsider. Now, in all my troubles up to now, I really, really confided in my mom and dad. And I vividly remember my mom asked me if I was okay that day I planned to drive up to her, uh, her parents' house. And what did I do again? I, I told her, I'm okay. And it was basically, I knew she could see my torment that I, that I had inside me, but 
I wanted to feel like I was in control, like everything was fine, like I could do it on my own. So I, I go up there, and of course, you know, I, I didn't persuade her parents, couldn't. The discussion had been decided before, you know, I even pleaded my case. And I just felt miserable because a couple of days later, a couple of days before New Year's, she goes through the abortion, and I started off the New Year's heartbroken and in misery. And I also started off the New Year by getting drunk New Year's Eve night and not even staying awake during the New Year. So I started my drinking again. And as we made it back to our, my house in Pomona a couple of days after the New Year's, I started smoking and drinking once again just about every day. And I remember telling her, my ex, that what was the point of quitting now? I was basically saying that try to make her feel bad, you know, guilt trip her, because I was feeling bad. And I just grew cold over the next few weeks, being easily annoyed, using the pain of that incident, the abortion, to like using that as my crutch to kind of like any time when it's like, oh, well, you know, you did this, I think. And using that as an excuse, like, uh, oh, like, this is why, like, I don't care what you say, I'm going to keep smoking, I'm going to keep drinking, I'm going to go out with my friends. And that's what happened on January 28, 2012. I decided to go with some of my college buddies to a club out in Costa Mesa to see a DJ we wanted to, that we liked. And um, Max didn't really want to go. Uh, I eventually guilt tripped her into coming along. We pre-partied at my friend's house in Newport Beach, and, and then we took a taxi to the club. Started drinking by about 8.30 that night, and by 10 p.m., I had roughly nine drinks already, and most of them hard liquor, mixed drinks. My ex and I got into a verbal argument in the club. And you were driving? So we when took you... a taxi <clears throat> to the club. So I drove to my friend's house in Newport, I left my car there and we took a taxi to the club. The plan was we were all going to take a taxi back from the club and spend the night there at my friend's house. Right. And so my ex and I get into, into a verbal argument into the club, at the club, which then continued as we left the club. We left the club early before everyone else, I'm pretty sure, just because, you know, I, uh, I wanted to go about my, I wanted to leave the club. I wanted to be in control again and, and go like, hey, like, let's leave. We're arguing. Like, I don't want anyone to see this. And so we left. We made it back to my friend's house. We took a taxi back to my friend's house. And of course, no one was home. Everyone's at the club. We stayed outside of my friend's house for a couple hours. And, you know, no one's answering the phone. No one's coming back. And after a couple hours, I'm thinking, you know what? It's been a little while. I could drive. I'm feeling better. I want to go back home. I want to get this night like over with. I want to get this whole argument, get this just this entire bad night and put in the past. Wanted to run away from that that whole situation and worst decision of my life. Um, never made it home. About 2 a.m. of January 29th now, the wee hours in the morning, January 29th, 2012, I got onto the wrong side of the 91 freeway and crashed into another vehicle head on. Do you have any recollection of that night? I have slight recollections of remembering being outside of my friend's house, kind of remembering when we left the club. I don't remember what entirely the argument was about. I don't remember actually ever getting back to my, finding my car and getting back to my car. Because my car wasn't there at the Newport Peninsula. It's kind of hard sometimes to 
find a parking spot near uh, my friend's house. So it was a few blocks away. I don't even remember walking to my car and getting into it. The next thing I kind of remember is uh, I vaguely remember crashing and hearing, like, my ex kind of moan out of the car, like, that she's hurt. And I try getting out of the car, and uh, my my leg is, is broken in a bunch of different places, both of my legs. And I just completely black out again because I'm in an immense amount of pain. I can't even stand up. And... Do you remember seeing up. the other? Do you remember seeing the other car come coming at you head on? Are you going at the other car head I, on? I did not. Re- I did not remember seeing the car head on. Just the next thing I remember is just the impact, and just of course we we go spinning out a little bit, and hearing my ex say she's in pain. I don't feel my the pain of like all oh, my my broken bone, and I try to get out of the car thinking like okay. I'm going to try to get my ex out of the car and help her out. That's the last thing I remember trying to get out of the car and just realizing that I had immense amount of pain in my legs and I just passed out again. Did you I pass out inside the car or outside the car? I passed out outside the car. And okay. I passed out right there on the side of the freeway. So you're saying on the one hand that you, know, you don't remember the head-on crash. You remember trying to get out of the car. You remember passing out. So outside of what you remember, what do you know from a recounting of whether a probation report or a police report? What do you know that happened after that? But I know uh, reading after reading my probation report and uh, everything that happened, trial, all the evidence brought up. So what happened was that my ex and I, yeah, I got into an argument. Uh, I left from Newport somewhere between like 1, 1.30ish, got onto the wrong side of the 91 freeway by taking, I was already driving on the wrong side of the highway 241, I think it's 241, before, before that. Mind you, I, I don't remember any of that, drive, like driving on the wrong side of the road or just even driving, period. I, I, I barely even remember that. I, the next thing to remember or what was brought up was I'm driving on the wrong side. I get into the 91 freeway, driving on the wrong side of the road from uh, another highway that I'm driving on the wrong side of the road. And I'm probably driving on the 91 freeway for 30 seconds or so, 30 seconds to a minute on the wrong side of the freeway before I actually crash into the other vehicle. And during this time, there are other drivers that are calling 911, you know, swerving out of the way, notifying PHP that there is a wrong way driver on the 911 freeway. About a minute into driving onto the 911 freeway uh, on the wrong way, uh, I do crash into another vehicle. And the passenger of the other vehicle is murdered and my ex and the driver of the other vehicle uh, both suffered great bodily injuries. They suffered broken nose and uh, things like that. So they do suffer great bodily injuries. As well as myself, I also uh, suffered complete break, uh, compound fracture of uh, my femur, a couple fractures on my ankle, on my right ankle, fractured sternum, you know, slight punctured lung, a few different things, a few injuries as well. And 
uh, lost about close to four years of uh, blood in my body. And I, I didn't know at the time, but that was a lot, almost near half. So it, it was a very, very bad crash that everybody got injured. And it's surprising driving head on that, you know, no one else was uh, killed due to that because uh, I was, you know, driving on the freeway. And it, it, it is amazing that, that I um, didn't hit anyone sooner because there were other vehicles swerving out out of the way. And what, uh, what I do remember from reading transcripts is I go to UCI Medical Center, told that someone, someone died, someone has passed away. And the next day, you know, I'm, a couple of days later, I'm told that I'm being charged for murder. I remember getting processed at the Orange County Jail being charged, you know, telling me that I'm being charged with second-degree murder. And it's a frightening thing. Like, I'm thinking I'm going to be placed with other murderers, placed with, like, just the worst of the worst, and, and uh, how did I get here type thing. And right. So, you do remember being woken up, or what, you're in the hospital, and you're probably handcuffed to the bed, but you remember being woken up and told that you're being charged with second-degree murder. What were you feeling then, and what questions were you asking? Did you ask about your girlfriend? Did you ask about the other driver? You know, uh, what, what was going through your mind? So they did tell me that someone had passed, and they didn't want to tell me who it was at first. And so I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's my my ex, and I'm thinking it she passed, and that's why they don't want to tell me. And they say, you know, I'm getting charged with secondary murder. And I'm feeling horrible on myself. I'm feeling like I'm going away for a long time. I'm feeling that I'm going to be without my family for a long time. Like, I feel devastated that I don't know what the future's going to hold anymore. Like, I don't even know why I'm even alive, why, like, I, I, I have to endure this. Feeling down on myself, feeling, of course, guilty, shameful, because now, like, um, bringing shame on my family uh, as well as, you know, myself and just, just everything, like, not not feeling a, and definitely in the worst situation feeling, crappy feeling and just depressed feeling that I felt felt alone, isolated, I'm not allowed to see my family or anything like that while I'm handcuffed there. And it's not until they take me away from the hospital to process me that they actually tell me that that she's alive, so that it was the pastor of the other vehicle who I had murdered. I'm asking them questions like, you know, who was she? Like, they tell me I was a girl, a woman, and uh, you know that she was uh, a mother, you know, two kids, and they tell me a little bit, a few things here and there, and and you know, I remember telling the TV officers that were interviewing me, and I just remember telling them, like, I'm so stupid, like, I'm, I'm gonna go away for a long time. You knew it. You know, it, it I knew it. I, I, it had sunk in at that time. It, I, I knew, I knew what I had done was there's no going back, and that I had done a great thing that just, uh, it, it can't be reversed, and that I, I, 
that I, I'm gonna have to call for. I'm gonna have to account for all this. And so I, I, I'm feeling, you know, isolated. I'm feeling alone, even so, more so because uh, now I'm, they're taking me to uh, the county jail to be processed. I have no idea how the process works. I have no idea what jail works. I have no idea what even jail looks like. And so I'm there, and deputies are getting mad at me because uh, none of this makes sense. And they start asking questions like, you know, what race are you? Like, who do you run with? What gang are you from? Stuff like this. And I'm, I, I have no idea, like, why any of this is important. Like, why is my like ethnicity important? Like, don't you guys know I'm a college student? Like, what do you mean who I run with? Like, what does this all mean? They didn't like my answers. They assumed I was trying to avoid their questions. But I generally didn't know. I didn't know like anything to do like how the jail system worked. So for a little under a year, um, I'm in the middle air, medical area of the jail due to my injuries. And there really isn't any jail or prison politics there at that time. During this time, you know, everyone's talking to one another. It just, it all seems like calm. Like it doesn't seem like what I expected. While at the same time, you know, a lot of like all friends, they're not talking to me anymore. They can stop communicating with me. My ex had stopped communicating with me uh, entirely by that time. But I was still hopeful that they would reach out. I mean, I told myself, you know, we're friends. They're just busy. Um, stuff like that. Like, Eventually, you know, I got released from the medical area. And I was thrown into a session in jail where it was like only Mexican and white inmate, uh, inmates were held. And I'm in another culture shock at this time. Because I come to realize just about everyone there is in a gang. And I'm like, why am I here? I think they placed me in the wrong place. These people are all gang members. Kind of asked myself too, like, don't the deputies know that I'm not a gang member? Like, I'm just kind of a wimpy college kid. Like, they're throwing me in a pack of wolves. You hear that narrative. I hear that narrative now, and it's like, that's definitely some entitlement issues. Right. And still wanting to be perceived as better. Right. I mean, well, I had to decide very fast then on, like, on whether I was going to conform to these jailhouse rules. Because, uh, at that moment, you know, there I was threatened, you know, with an impending butt whooping if if I didn't conform to these rules. They're like, Okay, you're either in or you're gonna get removed from right. this area and it was It's an interesting uh, point that uh, you know, you got you learn real quick that there's no uh special part of the jail for you know, the the nerdy Mexican or the college Mexican or the or the uh, or the Mexican that doesn't gang bang. Uh there's only no, one section for you. There's only one section for me. Yeah, I learned that immediately, right then and there. Unfortunately, you know, I made the wrong choice again and uh, decided to conform to these jailhouse politics. You know, stupid rules such as, you know, if like one Mexican fights for the race, like everyone else has to jump in, you know, which is at this time, you know, there's only other race or white people there and like white inmates and they're vastly outnumbered. Up until now, you know, over a year in jail, I'm among going back and forth to court. Things just kept getting pushed back at court. I'm once again feeling alone, you know, depressed, anxious, nervous about my safety with those around me. Hypervigilant, you know, hypercautious. Yeah, hyper, hypercautious, hypervigilant. Just uh, on edge because, like, I don't, I don't know if I'm truly safe. Yeah, I'm saying that I'm gonna abide by these things, but honestly, like in my head, I, I had already decided. I'm like, yeah, if a riot breaks out, I'm not gonna jump in. Like, I'm just not going to. And unlike a lot of them, you knew that the values and principles and the beliefs that they were putting out there, 
that they believed wholeheartedly in that you knew was a complete lie that you didn't believe in. And here no. you are where it's like, if I don't go by them, me or them, it, it, it could be my life. Exactly. And that's definitely like the fear I was going with. I was like, this could be my life. Like, I, I know that I don't want to do these same things that they're doing. But if I don't, like, I'm potentially going to be killed or, or if not that worse, still some very great bodily injury, bodily harm. I'm like, I do not want to deal with that. How long were you in the county jail? A waiting trial. I was in the county jail for three years. Three years? Yes. That's an eternity in the county jail. Yes, it, so you, it feels definitely like an eternity. You, you learn you learn how to survive in there. Obviously, you were you were fighting the case. Did, to be in county jail that long, to me, I assume that you were fighting the case. Is that true? Yes. Um, the entire time I was fighting my case for the whole three years. What and, were you hoping um, for? I was hoping to get a deal. I was hoping – I knew that I was going to get some time. But I was hoping, like, okay, I do not want to get 15 years to life, which what second-degree murder carried. So I still hold on to this hope. I was like, ah, maybe if we just keep pushing it back, keep pushing it back, I'll get some relief. So give you vehicular manslaughter? Yes, to a, yeah. a lesser charge, yeah, vehicular manslaughter. Right. We'll get back to the county jail and things like that, but how did you feel then and how do you feel now? So at that time... I'm definitely feeling, uh, definitely still entitled, uh, arrogant, deserving of a, of a lesser charge of like, hey, like, don't you know I'm a good person? So cut me some slack. I made this really horrible choice. I'm also even comparing a lot at that time. Like, man, there's other people that do the same thing and they're they're not charging them with murder. And I'm I'm coming up with all these different stories, probably, you know, to try to make myself, you know, not seem like this terrible guy and now I realized I was that terrible guy I was getting high every day I was drinking binge drinking you know every chance practically that I got like to hang out with friends and stuff I wasn't living this outstanding college kid life I was living a life where I was going to kill someone that it was just a matter of time that and I realize now, like, I was living a very, yeah, like you said, like a very selfish life. I was living a life where it's like, I want to be in control. And that's obviously apparent, like, even going to the court proceedings. Like, I still wanted to be in control by saying, like, hey, I deserve a deal. That's still me being in control. Like, you know what? I'm going to look like this outstanding person still so I can manipulate the system to to let me get a lesser charge. I'm still using all those that manipulation tactic to be like to get my way to um, get what I desired. And I realize now, like, I murdered somebody. That family, that that woman, she's a mother. Her kids are never going to see her again. Their kids are never going to experience going to Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, holidays, birthdays celebration, times of good and times of that are not so great with their family, not those those times of the good and the bad, the, the, the fun and the struggles, not to get to experience life. And here I am getting that chance to still live, to be alive. And I look back and I'm like, that really, I'm the one that caused this. I'm the one 
that did this. There, there's no, there's no one, there's no entitlement, there's no deserving. If anything, Ruben, you deserve the worst because yes, you did murder somebody, and not only that, but you harmed people all throughout your life by your, by your drinking, by your smoking. You continuously emotionally harmed like your friends, my ex, the times that they had to see you, that they had to like take care of me and things because of my addiction. It just shows that like it, how selfish of a life, how, how presumptuous, how arrogant I was towards other people, towards their, their feelings, towards like, Hey, like as long as I'm accepted by you guys, like everything else doesn't matter. As long as I look good, doesn't matter how you feel. As long as I feel good, doesn't matter how how you look. Doesn't matter any of that, because all that matters is what I get, the satisfaction that I'm getting. Looking back now, I I, I see that I am a murderer. As much as going to that court proceeding that I didn't want to think, I was like, oh, I'm just a person who made a bad choice, killed somebody. No. Of a person who made many bad choices throughout his life and murdered somebody because of that. And I realize that now I, I, I look back and I'm like, and I can honestly say that, like, yeah, Ruben, you made horrible choices. Not just one day, not just one time, not just for one week. You made them for years. And you continue to, to do it for years. Yeah, you are a terrible person. Like, yeah, you're you're not this good guy that you have painted yourself out to be, Ruben. Right. I just wanted to share something with you, uh, Ruben. I appreciate you taking responsibility for for what you did and what you caused, and for sharing what you shared right now. But I also want to say, like you said, you you were making terrible choices, resulting in a second degree murder. But that's not that's what you did. See, that's what you did. That's not who you are. No, it's who you were being, you know, resulting. That's who I was being. That's who you were being, and resulting in a woman's life being taken. That's who you were being, and that's, but that's not who you are today. It's what no. you did, and you're not defined by your past. Past is past. Today, yeah. today you're a new man. I know you. I've spent time with you. I know you live by new principles, and I know you've been sober for a long time now. And for those yeah. who don't know, I mean, you can access alcohol or drugs any day of the week in prison. So yeah. uh, I know you live uh, sober by choice today. But talk about when when did you take a stand for a new future? When was it a, a one, one, was it an aha moment or was it a, a gradual process? All right. Talk about your, your transformation into how you thought then, you know, pretty selfish and self-centered, entitled, egotistical to now, you know, living a, a selfless and humble, sober uh, life with empathy. Well, I recall now that the moment that things started changing, that the transformation that came. Now, I continued to make bad choices in, in county jail. And uh, I, at one point, was in the day room when someone got beat up. And my mentality was like, I'm not going to uh, participate. But I'm going to stand nearby. So it seems like I did. And then so the cameras that are there see that I didn't. And so like that I didn't even swing. So then I would be in the clear on both sides by the deputies and both by your names. Well, that was ridiculous thinking because I 
still got written up for participating in a fight and lined to staff because I did I refused to say anything to him. And then later on that day, I got a, a butt whooping because I didn't get involved in the riot. So not long after that, they take me to segregation unit for the rules violation. And when I came out of there, I was put into a cell where I made a, a Christian brother named Jonathan. Since being incarcerated, I had always immersed myself in the Bible, but I wasn't practicing really what it stated. I was just reading. I remember starting to uh, talk to Brother Jonathan more and get into these really like moral and spiritual discussions with him. And I recall trying to one-up him one time by using like fancy rhetoric and technical jargon and just it had nothing to it had absolutely nothing to do with the actual discussion that we were having that day. I was just really being arrogant to him and just kind of wanted to show him like, you know, hey, I'm the college-educated one. I'm the engineer here. You're the one who hasn't graduated high school. So you're not going to win this argument, I think. And I remember him blatantly looking at me. He was like, man, Ruben, he's like, you're such a smart guy, and yeah, you make such foolish choices. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, He's like, yeah, you, you, you want to be accepted out here. He's like, you want to be accepted in here. Like, so you just go with everything. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I, I kind of got into an argument with him in there. And he was just like, look, he's like, he's like, you're like, you're really smart. He's like, and you might be really smart in math and science. He's like, and he's like, I might be a fool, but he's like, and I'll tell you this much. He's like, at least he's like my foolishness at a different level of, of intelligence that you, you'll ever understand. I didn't really know what he meant. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, it, it just seems like nonsense to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just like, there's there's no way of putting it. I, it felt like nonsense because I was like, okay, you need to go back and finish your GED or something. And that was my thinking. That moment was like the aha moment because I kept sitting in that for a long time and listening to what he was saying. We always had Bible studies together and listening to what he was saying and as he's saying things in the Bible study, I keep repeating that same thing of like, why does he say I'm foolish? Like, why does he say these choices, like these the people I'm hanging out with, like here in jail, like all this stuff that I'm doing, like, why is it foolish to him? Like, how, why, how does he not see me as smart? He sees me as completely ignorant and dumb. I'm looking at him that way. You know, I'm looking at him as an object, like just in equal fashion. And it like, that dawns on me. I'm like, wait, I'm looking at him in the same way that like, I think he's looking at me as. And I started kind of picturing things together. Like, wait, he, I am making foolish choices. I'm surrounding myself around the people who are doing drugs, selling drugs, making people fight each other, you know, uh, like getting into fights. And I'm talking with those people and I'm, that's who I'm associating myself around. And it dawns on me like, I'm doing exactly the same thing I've been doing all my life. And here's this person that sees that. Here's this person that, like, I, I, here's this other person that I I think is not smart, but he sees it. Like, instantly he saw it. And he, all he's trying to do is just tell me the truth. He's telling me the honest truth. That's that, value, that, that's that value bomb right there. Here's a person who this guy saw Absolutely. a pattern that I wasn't seeing. And then all of a sudden that awareness hits you. I've been doing this same pattern my whole life. And here I am in a county jail facing 
a life sentence and I'm still doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, that that was a shock because he saw it instantly, something that I was blinded to. And that started helping me clear up the fog that was around my eyes. And I started questioning, am I really doing the right thing? And so these answers I'm getting are derived from those my, my belief that, you know, hey, like, uh, I need to fit in. Like, I need to... I need to make sure I don't get my butt whooped. Like, I need to gain some acceptance. So, obviously, they sound weak. And that same day where he's hammering with questions, we read a passage from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. And it says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your call. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And at that time, I honestly thought I was like the wisest person there in prison. You know, I'm smarter than everyone else, obviously. And here's Brother Jonathan, who I'm thinking his life is completely foolish. But in all honesty, after we read that passage, after all those questions, he put me to shame. He showed me, like, you're dumb, Ruben. <laughs> and it was one of those first things, one of the first things that, like, I recall, like, some humbleness. Like, you know, it, it came to my mind of, maybe I am dumb. Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And in the I, world standards, you're well, wise. In God's standards, you need to humble yourself still. Yes, I I need to humble myself. And those verses right there, God being wiser than men, here I was thinking I was wiser than everyone else. And I started unraveling this new perspective that day, like seeing that meaningful solutions to all of my life, all of to my outward confliction, all of my behaviors could really only be brought about by finding meaningful solutions to my inner struggles. I had to actually look within to fix what's within me if I was going to ever fix what's without of me. And it was, it was a huge step. The I, transformation begins within. Yes. It started beginning at that moment. The impact that it still leaves on today is I still talk to brother Jonathan. I still like hear from him every now and again and he's doing well. Like, when you stop looking down and start looking up, it can be something as simple as that. And I attributed to that. I remember hearing that in county jail. Like, it's when I stopped looking down and started looking up that I was able to see something new. And that's kind of like, I guess, the gravity of it, that sitting there face to face, you're seeing the person as, as a person. Like, here I was looking at brother Jonathan as like an object like saying like hey this guy doesn't even have GED he's not smart and here I'm thinking like I got all the solutions I got like all the answers and that wasn't the case like I finally realized there was a person in front of me a person who cared I'm seeing him face to face I'm seeing that my behavior upsets him and this is someone that I've only known for a few months now probably for about four months by that point. And I can see that my behaviors 
frustrate him, like upset him. And I think that's also what what impacted me so much that here's this person that I barely just met. In all honesty, like I didn't feel like I knew so much, but here he was willing to put like his importance, his his own selfish desires aside for someone else. And it it kind of I wouldn't say kind of, it touched me. It was one of those things where I just hadn't been able to to look at that square in the eye and actually see it for what it was. And yeah, I guess what was it for you? What was it for me was that so for me at that point it was that someone actually cared. Here I was in prison. I didn't think any or in jail, I didn't think anyone cared about me that was around me, you know, any other inmates. Same thing when I went to college. I didn't really think most of my fraternity brothers really cared about each other. I mean, there was only a couple of them that I would consider to this day still like good friends. But for the most part, all of them, I always felt this sense of like there was no caring. It was just you were a part of this and you went along with everything. And it kind of, and it was felt that same way when I went to county jail. Like here I was trying to gain acceptance right. again. And all of this, like, following it and being a part of the whole prison mentality and thinking, you know, that in itself is going to gain me some acceptance. And that in itself is going to, like, help me or show me that someone's caring when in actuality it didn't. It just kept feeling like it was this void. And now I'm here with Brother Donathan and he's speaking to me face to face. And he's showing me, like, this humanity. He's right. showing me that there is somebody that cares. It's just at this point, like, I stopped objectifying him. Right. I realized that I was just looking at him as, like, a means to an end. I right. want to get my end, and I'm just going to use you. Right. What new decision did you make from that point forward? How did that conversation continue to impact you to today? So... That new decision that I, I made from that day forward is the next day I actually told the guys I was holding drugs for, I was like, I'm not going to hold this anymore. Here you go. And I gave it back to them and I told them, nah, I'm like, I'm not going to use it anymore either. I don't want any of that stuff. And I worked up the courage a couple months later to say like, hey, I am a Christian. I am on a new path and, you know, I'm starting a new journey. And if you guys are not okay with that, just let me know. But regardless whether or not you're okay, that's what I'm choosing to do. And you guys might be frustrated by it, but oh well, like that's what I need to do now. That's what I'm choosing to do because I know that if I continue down what I'm doing right now, I'm never gonna see my family again. I'm never gonna be happy in life. I'm never gonna have joy in my life. I'm just never gonna succeed in what it is that I truly want to do in my life. And for the most part, fear fear runs prison. So were you afraid to go have those conversations? Were there any consequences? What were their responses? Absolutely. Um, I was afraid like hell to to have that conversation. That's why it took a couple months for me to actually like take the full stance of actually having that that final big conversation of no, I'm not even a part of this anymore. And that fear was like, I'm going to get my bubble up because this is exactly what's happened before. And in actuality, it all those assumptions I had, all those beliefs that I had about what was going to happen if I did that turned out to be false. It turned out to be like, you know what, like 
when I had that conversation with them, it was difficult. But it happened, and when it happened, they were like, okay, well, we're going to just make sure that's what you're doing and know if you backslide, like, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences. You already know what's going to happen to you. You get beat up, you get removed, things like that. Okay. And I think at that point, that's when I was like, that's it? That's all it took? Right. Because it wasn't anything big. Like, here I thought, like, at that moment, they were going to beat me up. And here it was, was just like, okay. They wanted me to prove myself um, right. to make sure that I'm actually solid in my foundation wise and what I'm saying I am. And that's exactly like what I started finding when I started like talking with brother Jonathan, when I started going to Bible studies a little more and just started actually finding my faith in God. Like I started building a foundation, something instead of like going with the wind and going with what everyone else was saying. I was starting to go with what I chose to do, what I was wanting to say that I wanted to do. No longer influenced by like, hey, like, how is this going to make me look? Or like, what are people going to say? It's like, at the end of the day, how am I going to look at myself based upon the choices I make every single day? So those conversations happen. Consequences were, of course, like, you, you're, you're stigmatized. You're, you're being watched um, so much, and there there wasn't any big consequence afterwards as far as getting beat up. I mean, the most thing you could say was I was ostracized, I was outcasted, but that was okay because it was from people that didn't care about me. I had come to realize that I was afraid to let go of people that really didn't care about me. Yeah, and you come to a point where you where you realize like. I don't need their attention. I don't need their affection. I don't need their acceptance. You take a, a bold stand for who you're going to live. And yeah, you may have less friends, but the friends, the, the alternative is friends of the, the gang element, the criminal element, the drug element. And, the, and I think the truth is, is that they know that they're using you because they don't want to hold the drugs. And when you come and take a bold stand, they just move on to the next person to uh, go and use. I realized that the same thing I was doing to Jonathan objectifying him is they were objectifying me. Like they were exactly. just looking at me as like a little, like you just said, the, the, the mule. Like, here you go. You hold the stuff. It's how much can you use you? And then we can expel you. How much can we expunge from you? And then like, you're, you're out, you're out left to dry right after we've gotten everything that we can out of you. Meeting all these people right after that transformational work too. I started surrounding myself around positive people. The brother Jonathan that they show me like they're showing me that I'm an actual person. They're treating me as an actual person instead of what, what I was thinking at that time that just everyone did because I was doing it. I was just using people too. I was just using my parents, my brothers, everything to get ahead in life. I was never actually taking the time to build a relationship with them. And that's what I like, figured at that moment, like, you know what? I'm going to choose to start building relationships with people. I'm going to choose to start looking at people and hearing them, hearing what they have to say. And that's not an easy thing because in hearing what they have to say, they're going to say things that you sometimes don't like. But when you don't like it, whatever it is they're saying, they're telling you the truth. And it actually has a lot more power. That truth has a lot more power than just me telling you something that, oh, it's okay. Like, you're going to be all right something that you want to hear that has no value it doesn't add anything to your life it's when you have that like heart to heart that jonathan had that day that concern that vulnerability 
that's what impacted me. Him being vulnerable to the point where he didn't even know me and he was willing to actually put himself on mine and be like, hey, I'm here for you. And whatever it takes, I'm not going to tell you what it is that you want to hear because that's what you don't need. And you're smart enough, Rubid, to know that's what you don't need. Yeah, you were blessed to meet somebody like that because those guys are rare. Yeah. From my experience. And another thing, Ruben, when you talk about how you grew, how you grew in boldness, because you you were in prison during a time, and I remember being there with you when uh, laws changed, and they let out Mexican mafia members, AB members, they let out those men who had been in the shoe for 20, 25 years, 15, 30 years, and they began to walk the main lines, and because they had no points, they went directly to level twos where we were at. And for you, I remember you go, coming out and going to work where some guys, even though they were Christian from Southern California, they were terrified to come out because of the consequences in their minds. Perception sometimes is reality, and their their perception was that they would be uh, either jumped or, or stabbed or even murdered. And uh, yeah. I remember you being one of the, the first ones to come out and seeing who is, it, who is this bold kid. And uh, so we talk about that. Yeah, when, when that started happening, by then I'd already made a bunch of decisions. By, by then it had been years since uh, Brother Jonathan had met other people, positive people that I've surrounded myself with. And I had always had this sense of, even back in the county jail, where I didn't want to participate when they were beating that guy up. I didn't want to participate in this either. And I I was too afraid at that point to do it, That when I was in county jail six, seven years ago when that happened. However... At this point now, when this was happening, I was like, I've made so many decisions in the past based upon fear. And in actuality, they led me down the wrong road and they led me to heartache. They they led me to more pain. And this was my opportunity to go, you know what? Instead of allowing myself to be ruled by that fear, I'm going to do something new and I'm going to be the first one out there. Yeah, I'm going to choose to do that because you know what? I'm going to show them that all the choices I've been making are the ones to show that I'm not a part of this culture, that I'm not promoting this violence, that I'm not going to be a part of the problems. Instead, I want to be part of the reconciliation, a part of the solution. So when all that happened, like I wanted to, when I finally chose to be like, I'm going to be the one to do that, it was a decision. And that that decision actually showed them where my foundation at. And they actually respected that more because they showed that, you know what, this guy's actually honest and true and genuine in what he's doing in his life. And there was actually one of them that said that. One of them, I call them head honchos, you know, one of those guys, they said that. They're like, you're one of those guys that preach what you what you say. And I don't, you don't say much. So in actuality, you're you're just doing all the things that the gospel says. You're doing all the things that what you should be doing as a Christian, as a person that like wants to help others, be of service to others. And it was kind of weird him telling me something like that. And it was hard. I mean, I was obviously worried because there's a bunch of other people watching me. You never know what someone else's mentality is. But I wasn't letting that cover my decisions anymore. I was exactly. more along the lines of, you know, I was more along the lines of like, I need to decide for myself what I'm going to do. And sure, there may be consequences, but if those actually do happen, 
then we'll meet it when it happens because right now I need to focus in on helping others and helping myself. I think that's a profound thing that you said right now. I'm not going to allow other people's thoughts or perceptions to govern my decisions. And when a person yeah. comes to that, that point while incarcerated, there is a tremendous amount of freedom that is available and it could totally transform their life. Now we're not saying that there may not be consequences at other, at another place. There may have been consequences. Sometimes they're grave. But when you come to that point where you take a stand to do what's right because it's the right thing to do, it's a great feeling of uh, freedom. Uh, I tell people sometimes out here, I had to get free in there before I could be free out here. And, um, you know, Ruben, what do you say to, to the family member, um, to the loved one who's listening to this podcast, and their loved one is telling them on the phone, you can't do that. What, whatever that guy said is not true. You can't do that or else you will be hurt. That you can't live with that kind of freedom in there. It's not that they're, they're being honest about that there's a decision. They talk as though there's no choice. Yes. So I'm going to answer that by giving you an example. So I was recently told by a certain group that I couldn't use their pay phones on the yard anymore because I told them I was unwilling to conform to the rules. And I'd also been vocal about the disdain of all of that, that prison politics that they were actually trying to push on the yard of all this dissension that they were trying to sow amongst, you know, everybody else. I told them that. And because of that, they're like, you know what? We don't want you using our phones anymore. And from that bold stance, yeah, I was worried. How am I going to call my family and friends? Is my, am I going to be safe? Yet at that point, I knew based upon my prior decisions, I knew that I could see there is a choice. You can take it for what they say, or you can choose to seek help. And I, saw, and I went out, sought some help. I asked a friend of an entirely different race. And he went and talked to his people, and they told all of them, and they told me, like, you know what? You can go ahead and use our pay phones on the yard now. So I'm actually calling you from a different pay phone from where I actually started when I first got here because of the fact that because of those different perspectives, that new perspective that I decided to choose for myself, it showed. And so there always is a choice. And... They could have easily beat me up for, you know, doing that same thing, but they didn't. Living counterculture may seem difficult, but we only choose to see it that way. See, I chose to see it as like the perfect opportunity, I guess, to experience a personal growth. When answering that question, I give that example because I, I love this quote from Mark Twain. It says, don't wait. The time will never be just right. I didn't wait. The time is never right. We can always say like, oh, I'll do it later. But, oh, it's too hard right now. But the time will never just be right. The perfect opportunity comes and goes just like that. I'm not going to say I'm not going to do something because that opportunity may never come back again. And that's exactly what I tell, would want to tell those family members of their loved ones in here that they think that they the choices can't be made, they can. There's always a choice. Don't wait, and the time will never just be right. Make the choice now, because you may never get that opportunity to make the choice once again. Now, if you're worried that there's going to be consequences, then you're worried about assumptions. You're worried about possibilities. You're worried about something that's most likely never going to come to fruition. And you're going to 
be governed based upon assumptions. So let them know that. Right now is the perfect time to jump on the, the new opportunity, to jump on the choice of trying something new. Yeah. Hey, Ruben, um, so we're coming towards the end of, of this interview. And just talk about um, when do you go to board, some of the things that you're a part of today as you prepare for board, the positive things that you're doing today. All right. So I go to board in about two and a half years. Thankfully, from Profit 7, I've taken a lot of time off my sentence, and I'll be going in about two and a half years. How much time? I've taken off about three years, nine months, as of right now. And you did that how? And that was because... And I did that first proposition 57 took two years right from itself based off my base term. And then on top of that, I got an AA degree. I got a bachelor's degree. I just finished my bachelor's degree, a bachelor's of science and business administration throughout the state of Colorado. And I've been doing groups. I've been facilitating a lot of self-help groups as well. I'm part of Phoenix Alliance, which does a lot of this transformational coaching and it's a lot of these new perspectives, these new opportunities, this new attitude, these new beliefs that I've been taught, we now teach to other inmates in here. We do that same transformational work in here through Phoenix Alliance. I'm a part of that. I'm also a part of Life Cycle, where we have a book reading with Palma High School students. And I've always wanted to go back and speak to high school students or college students. And with Life Cycle's Palma High reading, and with Phoenix Alliance, we do a leadership for life seminar with Harnell college students and I'm in prison and I'm doing what I wanted to do when I get out of prison. I'm already doing it in here from the place where everyone thinks you can't do anything, but I'm getting it done already. And that's like amazing. Here I am with Toastmasters and I'm organizing an event with Cal State Monterey Bay. It's going to be something similar, kind of like a TED talk. Not really. We're doing like some presentations on curbing recidivism, reentry into society, and voting rights with some other communication students. And no one had ever reached out to them from Toastmasters to Cal State Monterey Bay. All I did was just send a letter. They answered back. It wasn't until I actually put action, like my actions forward and actually did what I said I wanted to do that all of these things came to fruition. So I'm, I'm part of also the AA community here too. I sponsor sponsors here. I have my own sponsor. I've actually made it through all the twelve, like all twelve steps of AA, which is a great accomplishment. It's some of the some of those things right there that I'm doing has helped me get closer to board, get me prepared actually for life as well, giving me the life skills. Where not only have I learned through education, business, some business skills, but now at the same time I'm learning actual life skills, skills that I can not only teach to others but also continue to like hone inside of myself to continue to add growth in my life. It's definitely great. <laughs> um, there's many things I've been doing in here that honestly I would never have done ever in my life. And I probably would never have thought that I could even do it in prison. And I stand before you today, like being able to do it and, it brings so much joy because it's what I envisioned talking to high school and college students and and I have I have that opportunity. It's a humbling experience. And certainly it's something that you wouldn't be doing right now if you're still holding drugs for the gang members and had not heeded uh 
and uh, allow Jonathan's words to impact you and uh, permeate your heart and mind. And uh, I know you, Ruben. Uh, I know that you live as a transformed man in there. You're a beacon of hope, a light, like a light tower that guides the way for others, showing them that there is a, a new way to live, another way to live, that uh, fear doesn't have to win the day. I'm proud of you. I love you. And um, I, I look forward to the day when you're free. Until then, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, stay on that path. I'd like to uh, stay in touch and follow through with you in, in the future. I appreciate you doing this interview. And I just want to close up by, by asking, is there any, any closing words that you would like to share? There's a possibility that we could get these podcast uh, episodes inside the prison system. And your interview may be heard by guys who are, are incarcerated. If there's a message you have for them or, or, or any uh, loved ones of the incarcerated, would you please share that now? I would say for anybody that's out there, the real waste is not in sacrificing our past by quitting a failing endeavor. It is in sacrificing our future by not pursuing something better. This pursuing something better can happen from anywhere. The real waste that I was doing was not being able to sacrifice holding those drugs, doing using drugs, being a part of this whole prison culture. But the minute that I sacrificed all that, the minute that I actually let all of that go, was the first time in my life where I actually can go towards the future and actually pursue something better. And that's why I said, don't wait, because the time won't ever be just right. It never will. Do it now, because you never know when the opportunity will come. You never know when you'll get another chance, and you'll never know if you'll get another day. So... Let's not waste our future by not willing to let go of what we're already failing at, of what already is hindering us. And I would say, keep your head up, because we tend to just kind of look down all the time here in prison. And it's not until we actually look up and see the light that we're actually able to see a new perspective. Thank you, Ruben. Appreciate you. Yep. Yes, no problem. So that, thank you for that, Richard. Uh, good stuff. <laughs> glad to, I, I was glad to do this with you. Uh, definitely, definitely something uh, I, I'm gonna enjoy. And um, hopefully, I, I'm gonna get the your the the podcast website and everything uh, from Jay, uh, or if you want to give it to me right now, whatever, uh, because I'm. I definitely want my family. I want like all my friends. I want people. I want to put this out there. Put your, put not just my story, but everyone's story out there. Uh, your podcast out there, because I think that more people do need to hear about this. Certainly, uh, we're really excited about. We're really excited about that. I was excited to interview you uh, because of your transformational story, and also um, we we are going to be launching in about three or four weeks now with about probably eight episodes. Our season one is complete. We'll have 28 episodes. Your story will be in season one. Uh, appreciate you, you sharing. Um, uh, you have you know, 60 seconds remaining. If you know of others in there uh, who are, who are serious about their uh, transformation, uh, send them my way. We'd love to hear their story and get it out there. And uh, we hope to uh, shift the way people think about prison in America, shift, shift the way people think about incarcerated people, uh, letting them know that it's not once a criminal, always a criminal, that people are in there 
uh, transforming their lives and are getting ready to come home. And uh, they are re- we are returning citizens and and not uh, and not convicts and inmates and you know so we're returning citizens. Uh, for sure. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks for that, Richard. Uh, hope to hear from you again soon. All right, bro. Okay. God bless you. Right, Take care. Bye. God bless you. Take care. Bye. Right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to the Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.
That's the latest and the greatest. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I didn't 